Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer over at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And today I'm doing an episode based off a listener request. Nelly asked if I might do an episode about Instagram. And as it turns out, Instagram is a pretty interesting story and big enough so that it necessitates two episodes. So this is our first one talking about the birth of Instagram. And in our next episode, we'll continue that story. But today we're going to talk about an app that started off as a project that was meant to help a young fella learn how to code and it turned into a billion-dollar acquisition deal. It's one of those Silicon Valley fairy tales that thousands of people chase after, but only a select few ever achieve. So we're going to look at the Instagram story. And Instagram was designed by co-founders Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, and they launched it in 2010. But our story will begin a little earlier than that, because you guys know I love my history. So let's begin with a quick look at the backgrounds of the two founders. Kevin Systrom was born in 1983 in Holliston, Massachusetts. 
and his parents are Douglas Sistrom, a vice president of human resources at the department store corporation TJX Companies, and his mother Diane is an executive in the marketing department at Zipcar and has worked at other startups. He attended school in Concord, Massachusetts at a private school called Middlesex School, a boarding school or private school rather, which has fewer than 400 students total and, according to the New York Times, has nearly as many acres in land as it has students enrolled. So this is not a rags-to-riches tale. This is more of a riches-to-holy-cow-you-are-so-incredibly-rich tale for Mr. Systrom. In addition to his studies, he became a fan of the computer first-person shooter game Doom 2. And I talked about that in a couple of episodes way back when, when I was covering things like id. The Doom franchise was one of a handful of games that launched level developer tools to the community. That meant that if you liked, you could download those tools for yourself, and you could actually build your own maps for the game. Systrom began to do that and also started studying computer programming, though really only more as an enthusiast. He would not pursue a degree in computer science. After school, Systrom enrolled in Stanford University back in 2002, studying management science and engineering, so essentially the business classes over at Stanford. And Stanford was, uh, or still is actually, located near Silicon Valley in California, and it's one of those places where ambitious students and eager investors often collide. They They meet up with each other, they share ideas, and frequently students are looking to get recruited right out of school into one of the big tech companies. And uh, they that ends up just being a rich pool of talent for companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, uh, and all the startups as well. Systrom spent a winter semester at Stanford in Florence. He actually went to Florence to study abroad, studying photography in particular. So he had an interest in photography long before Instagram was ever a thing. And at this time, the iPhone had yet to appear, and cell phone cameras were fairly primitive, so he was using actual film cameras and higher-end digital cameras. In 2005, Systrom became part of a special work-study program called the Mayfield Fellows Program. Only 12 students are selected to do this each year at Stanford. Coincidentally, Mike Krieger, the other co-founder, would be selected for that same program in 2007. Though at that time, Systrom and Krieger didn't really know each other that well. Systrom's work in the program led to an internship at a company called Odeo. Now, I've covered Odeo in the past, but here's a very quick refresher. Odeo started out as a podcast-focused company. Not necessarily to produce podcasts, not a content creator, but rather as a way to publish podcasts, to subscribe to podcasts, and to follow podcasts. But Odeo faced serious, stiff competition, namely in iTunes. And ultimately, the company would pivot to a different project that one of its employees had been working on for a while. It was a little messaging app that would let users send out a quick 140-character message to followers, and it would end up being called Twitter. Systrom joined the Sigma Nu fraternity while he was at Stanford, and he gained a reputation for being creative and particularly talented at making visually appealing presentations and videos. During his senior year, he was encouraged to drop out of school and join the Facebook team, which was just really getting started at the time. Systrom actually turned down that offer after chatting with friends and concluding that Facebook was likely just a fad. I think things turned out all right for Systrom in the end, however, even though he missed that opportunity. 
After graduating Stanford in 2006, Systrom joined the ranks of Google in a move that many of his peers felt was a safe but somewhat uninspired decision. Google had already kind of established itself by 2006. It was no longer in that crazy startup phase. And Systrom would stay with Google for about three years, leaving to join a company called NextStop. NextStop was founded by a former Google employee, or actually a couple of former Google employees, and it was a social travel recommendation site. The idea was the site would help people find fun things to do in new locations, so you could post about things that were interesting at different places in the world. And that's where we're going to leave Mr. Systrom for the time being. We're going to switch to the other co-founder, Mike Krieger. Krieger was born in 1986 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. His father is an executive who traveled extensively, and so Krieger spent time in places like Portugal, Argentina, and the United States as he was growing up. He got his first computer when he was four years old, so yeah, this is also not a rags-to-riches story for Mr. Krieger. By the age of six, Krieger was already starting to experiment with coding, mostly in an effort to enhance his gaming experience on his Windows-based computer. So you're starting to sense a theme here, kids getting into coding through computer games. By the time he was a teenager, he was acting as a mentor to maintenance personnel in an after-school education program at his high school. So he would go attend high school, and afterwards he would help teach people how to develop computer skills so that they could get better jobs. It was kind of cool. When he turned 18, he was accepted to Stanford University, and that was in 2004. Krieger's major was in symbolic systems with a focus on human-computer interaction. That discipline combines elements not just of technology, but also psychology, and several other important movers and shakers in the tech world graduated with similar degrees. And as I mentioned earlier, Krieger, like Systrom, was part of the Mayfield Fellows Program, so he was also one of those 12 students. While in college, Krieger interned with Microsoft. He would work on uh, PowerPoint as a project manager. He also interned at a company called Foxmarks, which creates a browser add-on that allows users to synchronize passwords and bookmarks across multiple computers. And over there, he served as a software developer. And after he graduated Stanford, Krieger went on to work for a company called Mebo. Mebo was a web-based instant messaging provider as well as something of a social network. So in 2010, early 2010, Systrom is at NextStop, which would later be acquired by Facebook, and Krieger was at Mebo, which in 2012 would be acquired by Google, and Systrom was working on a little side project since 2009 that Krieger got a chance to try out because the two knew of each other, though at that point they hadn't really worked together. And that sets the ground for the predecessor for Instagram, which I'll talk about in just a second, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. 
Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. So before we went to the break, I mentioned that Systrom had been working on a project since 2009. That project was called Bourbon, but it was spelled B-U-R-B-N because it's an app and apps hate vowels, I guess. And bourbon is apparently Systrom's favorite drink. And he was working on it over the weekends when he wasn't doing his normal work, either at Google or then later at Next Stop. And it was a bit of an odd beast. Systrom had aspirations of launching his own app and potentially his own company. And bourbon was really the where he was cutting his teeth on app development because that really wasn't what he had studied. He knew about the power of apps and he was convinced that mobile was going to be the biggest thing moving forward. This was in 2010 when mobile was already doing quite well. And Bourbon was, in many ways, a project that Systrom was using to learn how to develop apps, how to use HTML5, and what sort of features users would actually want. Now, remember that while Systrom was interested in all this, he still didn't have that degree in computer science or anything like that. And so Bourbon ended up being kind of a hydra, a many-headed creature that was trying to do a lot of things all at once. For one thing, it was a check-in service, similar to what Foursquare used to be. You could visit a place and use the app to check in. 
You could let your friends know you had visited. You could make recommendations to friends, and you could plan for future get-togethers at specific spots, which would earn you points and a sort of gamified element in the app. Systrom had cited the social network game Mafia Wars as an influence on some of the app design. And you could upload photos to the app and share those with your friends as well. Krieger was an early user of Bourbon, and Systrom had conversations with Krieger focusing on ways to enhance the app's features and make things better. Meanwhile, Systrom continued life in Silicon Valley, which included going to networking events and to try to make connections with other entrepreneurs and developers. At one such event, hosted by a startup called Hunch, Systrom met a guy named Steve Anderson, who was the founder of Baseline Ventures, which is an investment firm. Anderson looked at a prototype build of Bourbon and agreed to invest in the development of the app. To the tune of $250,000 is a pretty big agreement. He also recommended to Systrom that he find a collaborator to work with more closely and not just become a personal echo chamber. In March 2010, Systrom decided to pursue Bourbon as an actual entrepreneurial opportunity, and he quit his job at Next Stop, which was a pretty easy decision to make especially after Mark Andreessen added to that initial investment with $250,000 of his own, which brought that launch investment up to half a million dollars. And Systrom was able to convince Krieger a couple of months later, in May 2010, to quit his job at Mebo and come work with him on the project. And so the two co-founders joined forces. They set up shop at a place called Dogpatch Labs, which was a, a company that offered up shared office space for the startup tech companies in the Bay Area. Uh, companies that did not yet have an office of their own could rent out space at Dogpatch Labs. And before long, the two decided that they weren't really on the right track. They had come to the conclusion that Bourbon was just too similar to Foursquare, which was already an established app at that time, and they also felt the service was just too busy and cluttered. It had so many features that it was a little confusing as to what it was intended to do. And thus, in June 2010, they decided to engage in the great tradition of app development, the pivot. And I mentioned a pivot a little bit earlier, but what exactly is that? Well, a pivot, in Silicon Valley speak, is when you realize you done messed up and you need to try something else. So if you ever hear about a company pivoting, what that's really saying is that the people in charge realize that what they had been doing is just not working and they'd better do something else or they're going to face ugly consequences. For Krieger and Systrom, that meant taking a look at their app and then trying to figure out what they might be able to salvage from it. And while the check-in services were sewn up, one thing that stood out was the idea of a photo-sharing app. Their first attempt at building a solo photo-sharing app was a failure. It didn't even get a new name. And this was before they had entirely abandoned the hope for a full-featured bourbon app. But they got back to it, and they began to refine their approach. And one thing that really helped them out was the inclusion of a popular feature in Instagram, the photo filter. Systrom tells a story about being on vacation with his then-girlfriend, now his wife, Nicole. Nicole was another Stanford graduate, and she explained to Systrom that she never really liked sharing the photos she was taking with her iPhone 4 because she felt they never looked as good as she wanted them to. And that inspired Systrom to develop a filter for photos taken by the iPhone 4 camera, and one that would automatically adjust settings in a post-processing approach so you didn't have to do all that 
messing around with settings yourself. It would just automatically apply them and make the image better. So it would change the color balance. It would change the contrast. It would soften the edges, add in a little bit of golden light to sweeten the image. And he taught himself how to create the tools and then developed his first filter, the X-Pro2 filter. And according to uh, both Systrom and Krieger, they would use Photoshop to actually create the effects they wanted to create uh, within Photoshop and then reverse engineer how to do that within the app, how to create those same effects uh, as an as a post-processing trick with images taken from a uh, iPhone camera. Ultimately, Krieger and Systrom decided that their new app would allow users to share photos, to leave comments, and to like images, as in you could hit the little like button or the little heart button and say, hey, that was a pretty cool picture, I really enjoy it, and also to use filters. They needed a new name, and they chose Instagram, which is a portmanteau of Instant and Telegram, and also kind of harkens back to the instant cameras that Systrom had played with when he was younger, like a classic Polaroid camera. It took the two about eight weeks to go from the idea to a full-fledged app. And before they submitted the app to the Apple App Store, they tested it with their friends. And these were influential friends. It wasn't just buddies who were in the neighborhood. These are people like Jack Dorsey, who was the founder of Twitter. Not bad idea if you want to get some evangelists for your product. You go after people who already have a a wide following. And a little after midnight on October 6, 2010, the Instagram app launched in the App Store. When it debuted, it was an iPhone exclusive, and it would remain so for more than a year and a half. The app wouldn't be available on other platforms for a while. So on the first day of it being available, about 25,000 people downloaded the app. They began taking photos. They began sharing them and breaking the system. The system load was too much for Instagram's initial servers to handle, and it sent Systrom and Krieger to a little bit of a panic. They tried to figure out who they could contact to get some advice, and they settled on Adam D'Angelo, whom Systrom had met at a Sigma Nu party at Stanford years earlier. D'Angelo had served as Facebook's chief technology officer and was a pretty knowledgeable guy. D'Angelo helped out his buddy and talked him through the process of moving the load over to Amazon's hosting services, where Instagram could rent server capacity while building out its own systems. According to Systrom, the conversation took about half an hour. And then things were back up and running. Now, at this point, it was still a two-man show, and both Systrom and Krieger made it a habit to always have a computer with Wi-Fi capability handy in case there was a need to jump into the app and patch it so that you could smooth out a bug or fix other problems, which was happening on a fairly regular basis due to the enormous popularity of the app. Because within just three weeks, that 25,000 user base had grown to 300,000. And this was just the start of a wild ride. Now, I have more to say about Instagram, but before I jump into the next section, let's take another quick break and thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. 
Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. The same month that Instagram launched, Systrom and Krieger hired their first coworker, Josh Riedel. He would become the community manager and led efforts to form partnerships at Instagram. He had previously worked at NextStop, the same company that Systrom had worked for earlier in 2010. A month later, in November 2010, Shane Sweeney joined as a mobile engineer. Sweeney had become interested in programming through computer games, sound familiar? And then later through social platforms. He had started working in web development while still in high school. He had moved on to doing work with a company that was called Digital Path that was making wireless mesh networks. It's a pretty cool technology. I'll have to do a full episode on that at some point. But three months into his stint of working for the company, the funding fell out and 100 people were laid off, including Sweeney. 
He would go on to work on personal projects at Dogpatch Labs, using that as a workspace. And there he met Systrom, and Systrom invited him to work on Bourbon earlier in 2010. But Sweeney actually said no when he was invited to work on Bourbon. It was only after Instagram launched that Sweeney reconsidered and joined the team. And in fact, I saw an interview with Sweeney where he said, there's an ongoing joke at Instagram that everyone says no to Systrom initially. He asks them to join his project and they'll say no. And then later on, they'll change their minds and say yes. And that this is just a a thematic thing that goes on at Instagram. Well, there wouldn't be another hire until 2011. So in those initial weeks, Instagram was a four-person operation. Meanwhile, the app continued to get thousands of downloads and user activity was increasing on a daily basis. In fact, by December 2010, Instagram had one million registered users. And remember, this was before there was any support for platforms like Android or Windows Mobile. This was purely on iOS. The flagship phone for Instagram was the iPhone 4, which had launched in June 2010. The iPhone 4 had two cameras. The back-facing one was a 5-megapixel camera, and the front-facing camera was just 0.3 megapixels. And a quick explanation for folks who have heard the term megapixels, but they don't really have a grasp on what that's all about. Megapixels are a way to measure image resolution. A pixel is a point of light within a digital image or a screen. So if you are looking at a television screen, Every single little bit of that television screen is made up of tiny little points of light called pixels. So every photo is a collection of pixels. If you only have a small number of pixels, your image is going to be blocky and ill-defined. I've used this uh, example before, but imagine that you've got a bunch of blocks of different colors. And the blocks measure maybe two inches per side. And you're told to make the image of a flower, and you're given 50 blocks to do it. That flower is going to be a little blocky. But let's say you're given 200 blocks and they're each a half inch per side. Well, that flower is going to be less blocky. It's going to look more like a flower. The smaller the blocks are and the more blocks you have, the more refined the image you can create. So you increase the resolution of your image. Uh, However... That's only part of the quality of a photo. It is true that more pixels generally means higher resolution image. And a megapixel is technically 1,048,576 pixels, though we usually just round down and say it's a million pixels. But megapixels don't always mean better photos. Like if you have a 10 megapixel camera and your friend has a 15 megapixel camera, it does not necessarily mean the 15 megapixel images are going to be better than yours. Uh, it mean, it matter, a lot of other things matter too. Systrom's then-girlfriend, Nicole, now wife, that's what she was complaining about. The iPhone 4 camera, it wasn't that the megapixels were bad. It was just that there were other elements that would factor into the quality of an image, like color representation or contrast and other factors. And that's partly why photo filters became so popular. The filters could compensate for shortcomings in the digital camera sensors that were found in smartphones at the time. Instagram was not the only app to do this, or even the first app to do this. The app Hipstamatic had already made a name for itself at this time, turning smartphone photos into these little squared-off images that looked like vintage photographs, and it had several filters that would automatically apply to each image to give it sort of that vintage feel. 
But Instagram gave users an easier way to archive photos and keep a record of those images. And unlike Hipstamatic, which cost $1.99 to purchase, Instagram was free. What's more, Systrom had said it would always be free and that monetization strategies would not involve users coughing up money to pay for the service. I'll have to do a full episode on Hipstamatic at some point because that's another fascinating story of a company that made a huge impact when it launched, only to find itself in troubled waters a couple of years later. In January 2011, Instagram rolled out support for one of its enduring features, hashtags. The hashtag the pound symbol, had already gained popularity over at Twitter, where users had sort of invented and adopted the practice in an effort to make it easier to follow tweets about specific subjects. You would use Twitter search, and you would search hashtag the term, and that way you would just get the tweets that were specifically including that hashtag. Because otherwise, if you just search for a regular word, you get a whole bunch of tweets that were not relevant to whatever it was you were looking for. So it was a way to narrow things down. Uh, so that was how it worked on Twitter. But in Instagram, it would do something similar, but this time it allow for another possible application, a group photo album. The way it works on Instagram is that you would caption a photo and you would include one or more hashtags to help describe the photo's context, what the photo is about, what's going on in the photo, something that's more specific than just hashtag photo. Perhaps you attended an event and you wanted your image included with others from that same event. So you might do something like hashtag Jonathan's birthday party. And then other people are using that same hashtag. And it becomes easy to see all the photos taken by all the people at that event by doing a search on hashtag Jonathan's birthday party. You just use that hashtag and boom, your image is going to join all the others tagged with that same label. Now granted, the more general the label, the more likely your image is going to be grouped with a bunch of ones that don't really have the same uh, same perspective or the same relevance as yours. So you want to get as specific as you can without getting ridiculously long hashtags. It's a bit of a balancing act. To do this, you have to make sure you're using those right hashtags. So if you use one variation and everyone else uses a different one, you're the one who's left out. So let's say, again, you said hashtag Jonathan's birthday and everyone else is doing hashtag John Strickland's birthday, then yours is not going to show up with everybody else's. And Instagram elites will tell you that including lots of hashtags to cover several different contexts is key to discoverability. I've seen guides about best uses, uh, best practices on, on Instagram suggesting that you should use no fewer than a dozen hashtags when you're captioning your photos if you want people to see them. I question that because I think after a while, if you see that many hashtags, you start to roll your eyes. But then again, I don't have that many followers on Instagram. So who am I to say whatever? Like, I, I can't give strategic advice. But it has led to abuse of the system as people began to use hashtags that were completely unrelated to the, the photos that they were posting just in an effort to get those photos seen. It would be disingenuous for me to take a photo of, say, the building I work in and tag it with hashtag Beyonce just to see if I could get more impressions with my image. And as Instagram has grown in popularity, having a lot of followers and engagement in the app has become much more important. It can be a way to get hired as a social manager, for example. So as a result, Instagram has occasionally instituted new policies to help cut down on hashtag abuse, including implementing a policy called shadow banning, which really only became known years later. And a shadow ban still allows you to post to Instagram. You can still 
contribute, but it will not share your images with the Instagram community through those hashtags. So let's say that I have been abusing hashtags on Instagram for a while. The algorithms have said, this guy is just using random hashtags that have nothing to do with his photos. We're going to shadow ban him. And then I go to see a big event. Let's say I go to uh, the uh, next Star Wars premiere and I'm taking a lot of photos from the red carpet and I want to have Star Wars premiere hashtag on my Instagram photos so that it can be added with everyone else's. I could still post all those photos to Instagram. And if you went to my account, you would actually see those photos, but they would not be shared with all the other Star Wars premiere photos because the shadow ban would keep my hashtag from working. And it was all meant to negate this tendency for people to use hashtags that had nothing to do with the images they were posting just in an effort to boost the number of views they were getting. In early 2011, Instagram held another round of investment funding. The app's popularity was skyrocketing with more than a million and a half users in February and more than 250,000 photos shared each day. And investors flocked to the new company. Adam D'Angelo was one of those investors, as was Jack Dorsey. Chris Saka, who was an early employee over at Google, also invested in the company. And in all... Angel investors poured $7 million into Instagram, which still had fewer than five people working there. So more than a million dollars per employee, which is pretty darn good. In 2011, Instagram would continue on its trajectory of growth. The company would hire three more new employees. Jessica Zolman joined in August 2011 as a community evangelist. She acted as part customer service representative and part communicator from the company to the users to explain new features and changes to the app. In October 2011, Amy Cole joined Instagram to handle business operations. Cole had previously worked for Sephora in business development. And in December 2011, Gregor Hochmuth, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, joined the company as an engineer, and he had previously co-founded a company called Modi, which presented users with slideshows of art, products, typography, and more, and you would rate the images with various finger swipe gestures. By the end of 2011, Instagram boasted 10 million active monthly users. Version 2.0 of the app had gone live on iOS and incorporated new features, including new filters, some new post-processing options like borders and tilt control, and more. But the real crazy stuff would happen the following year, in 2012. Instagram would grow again, and it would hold another round of funding. Systrom would talk about how he had no intention to sell the company, and then he sold the company to Facebook, just days later. But I'll cover that in our next episode. For now, we're going to wrap up. Thank you, Nelly, for the request. And I hope you enjoyed this first episode about the earliest days at Instagram, how it was born out of a totally different app. And it's interesting because when we cover in the second part, we'll talk about how Instagram's more recent trajectory has sort of put it back in line with what Bourbon was doing earlier in some ways. Not exactly the same way, but in ways that make me a little worried is probably the wrong word, but uh, concerned, let's say. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, hit me up, send me an email. The address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle there is techstuffhsw. And hey, you know what? We have an Instagram account. You should follow that. 
And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.